0: Welcome to Real Talk. I'm Andrew Dansker, your host. I'm here today with David Shekman, Senior Executive Managing Director of Meridian Investment Sales. David, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Always. I love to hear my own voice,
0: as you know. <laughs> well, good. It'll be out in about a week and you'll be able to listen to it on repeat. There you go. Great to have you. I appreciate it very much. I mean, uh, I think that there are very few people, everyone in New York City real estate is busy. I think there are a few people that are busier than you and in more places at once than you are. So I very much appreciate you taking the time to, to share some insight. I think that the timing of our conversation is really great because Everything I've seen looks like May has been the, the turning point for New York City, at least on a social level, restaurants, uh, people talking about getting together, things happening in person all of a sudden. It seems like things have opened up. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the real estate market in particular. Is the same thing happening? Is that what's going on in the real estate business?
1: It is. Um you know, the the word fervor pops into my head. It is returned. But I can give you two kind of metrics by which I'm, I'm marking the tenor of New York City real estate. The first one is the general health of the city. And I have a very base kind of ruler and measurement stick for how I've done that. I have been taking the train from Northern Westchester for about 12 years. And in March, I, like a lot of other people, obviously, I took a month and a half at home. But then I started coming in late May, June of 2020. I started driving in anywhere from 545 to 630 in the morning. I would depart Westchester. Over the course of the summer of 2020 and certainly through the fall of late 2020, it took no longer than 45 minutes to get down here. I will tell you, starting in March of 2021, it got to the point where it was an hour and 10 minutes to get in and it was taking an hour and 30 minutes to get out. Mm -hmm. I am back on the train, and I'm proud to announce I took a late train today. I took a 6.48 train. The train was about 60% full, which is the most that I've seen since I've been in. I'm also now having to wait online for my egg whites at 6.30 in the morning when Mm -hmm. I get in. Mm -hmm. I definitely see more people on the streets, And I'm definitely getting more invites for drinks, cocktails, a cup of coffee. So that's the simplest metric. Yes, life has returned to the city in earnest. Obviously, we got the great announcement today that uh, our politicians in their infinite misguided direction have at least uniformly said that the masks outside don't need to be worn. The second measuring stick is just simply response time on launching new initiatives and speaking to people. I would say only in the last four to five weeks would I say there's a very fervent market. Now, obviously a lot of people state, and it's not just real estate, but whenever you read in the media, during COVID I I worked harder than I ever have before. Well, that's probably true in large part because there were less distractions other than home life. But what, and, and it was very easy to get people on the phone and have long conversations but it didn't often result in any type of deals or even leads. I will tell you now, long gone are the conversations with where are you, how are your kids, what are you doing? Those conversations are over. Uh, You'll have the perfunctory, how are you, everything well at home, and then you get into business. I have a garage that I'm selling in Flushing on behalf of Fortress and Rockefeller and uh, Tishman, Acom, and the F&T Group. We launched about six weeks ago. I have 212 executed confidentiality agreements and four offers at the strike price. Wow. It has been a while. It's a, call it a $17 million deal. It has been a while. Since I've had bidders calling me up at night saying, sorry to bug you. And I say, it's 7.30, relax. I'm sorry to bug you. Where do we stand? We want to get a contract. That's kind of the pinnacle in real estate when you have a willing seller and a willing buyer. Right. So fervor has returned. Our income is going to grow steadily for the next three years from the abyss, which was 2020. So you know it feels, even though it's we're approaching summer, it feels like spring. Mm-hmm. Everybody has woken up and everybody's scurrying and it's healthy and great. And I think broker sentiment and principal sentiment, the lines, people are ready to do deals.
0: That's fantastic to hear. What about, we're talking about reopening, is reopening about deal volume? Is it about bidders or are we, are we actually already talking about a place where prices are moving and values are changing, cap rates are recompressing? That's always been a a fallacy
1: as the markets change in New York. I'll never forget uh, Bear Stearns collapsing in 2008 and then the lack of activity, just the paucity of activity in 2009. What you saw was distressed sellers, meaning banks that were forced because of Remick rules and the regulators to get rid of Dispose of their troubled loans or assets, and then sellers who just had to get rid of things, you did see a, a material dip in pricing, but it only lasted about 24 months. And then we just climbed from 2010 to probably the peak in 2017. There's definitely been cap rate expansion, but it's been coupled with an absolute standstill in activity. You know, we fell off the precipice volume wise. And I think what happened is you've read about some deals getting done in New York City in the multifamily space at four and a half, five, five and a half caps, some distressed deals being sold. But ultimately, I would say it's a general proposition, hotels are going to be highly structured sales, even though we've read about one at the airport recently in JFK. Those are going to be reset with regards to pricing, but those will be structured deal. Retail, I have five and a half caps, which 24 months ago would have been, we would have been asking with a straight face four caps, a pharmacy on Northern Boulevard. I could have sold that for a four cap. Today, the baseline that we tell people it's a five cap plus. So that cap rate expansion is real. Industrial is the greatest analogy to the retail rise of 2010 to 2017. As retail continues to decline or had continued to decline, because I think it's stabilized, industrial cap rates compressed. We just closed the $39 million deal in New Jersey at a 3.4 cap. And I had people angry at me that they weren't the winning bidder. So I do think there has been some cap rate expansion, but the lack of activity kind of tempered the amount of empirical data that we have to be able to say to people, look at these 25, six caps. The other phenomenon that's interesting now, Andrew, is so many New York pockets of equity left New York chasing cap rates and chasing revenue and chasing returns. So especially in the multifamily space, the product du jour of the past 18 months has been garden-style apartments in Jacksonville and Irving, Texas, and really exotic places like Wake Forest, North Carolina. And those cap rates, which four or five years ago had been five and a half, six, seven caps, are being compressed into the fours, and I dare say we have a $312 million multifamily deal closing the end of this month in the Massachusetts area, you're talking about four caps. What's starting to happen is a lot of the entities, whether they're institutions or high net worth individuals, they're starting to call us up and say, you know, it just dawned on us. Do I want to write a $10 million equity check to be in Kissimmee St. Cloud for a CVS at a four cap? Or would I rather write a $10 million equity check and be on the Lower East Side and be back in New York. I'm already starting to see some of the carpetbaggers retreat back here at home. And I think that's going to cause cap rate compression, but we shall see. That obviously still hinges on general market sentiment and uh, hoping that our regulators don't further hamstring commerce, and of course rates. But then again, most uh, popular wisdom is if inflation continues to increase, increase, and it seems counterintuitive, this is fact, rates will probably stay where they are. And that's a huge driver, huge driver for deals.
0: It's sort of amazing to be in a place where we're talking about New York City as the cash flow play.
1: There are deals that I am working on now, one in particular, and it's it's hitting above my average weight, because as you you know, we've known each other for years. I'm in the kind of 10 to 150 range is really where most of my strength is, although I hit a few deals with my team uh, over that every year. I've been hanging out a lot in the 100 to $300 million range, and I have a $295 million deal, which looks like it's taking place, which is a cash-on-cash cash 6% return Wow! for a major avenue in New York City. You know, if we had a time machine, I'd go back. That would be a three-and-a-half cap. Right. So, it, it, you're right. You can buy deals in New York today. And if you believe half of the broker projections, you could see mid to high single digit returns. And I, I think that most sophisticated investors would rather have a cash on cash six, seven, eight, nine percent return within 50 miles of Gotham than
0: take that same return in Lake Hiawatha. It just seems smart. I don't know why you said if you believe the broker projections. I've never seen broker projections that I thought were implausible. Well, I, it, certainly not
1: Meridian. Maybe <laughs> some of my uh, dear, dear friends and colleagues at other firms. But, but, but of course, everybody stresses everybody else's analysis. Yeah, of course. And most importantly, our banks. Whenever right. we go to the banks, they take our books and they put an X through a lot of things. Yeah, which we yeah. invite.
0: Yeah. You know, as you're going through the different asset classes, I'm curious to know if you're seeing a dichotomy between fair market assets and rent stabilized assets in terms of how those are trading, thinking about the heels of the rent changes, you know, rent law changes in 2019, et cetera. And if that's been digested, if it's having an effect, if, or if maybe there's another reason.
1: I always like to, when it, whenever we have these industry chats, I always like to talk about what's on my desk instead of being hyperbolic. I, we were just engaged and we're very excited to, to have won this assignment for the corner of 95th and Riverside Drive. It's 227 Riverside. Wonderful family, harmonious. Everything's great in the building. They've owned it for 67 years. Wow. And there were some offers and some potential deals 24 months ago in the $24 million range, plus or minus. And that was a no cap, essentially. It was a three cap on in place. Today, we're going to accept the slightly lower number, but we have pragmatic sellers. The building is 54% free market. I'm fascinated as I'm first beginning to launch it in earnest what the responses are. And you would have thought, and certainly a year ago, and since June of 2019, when we got the draconian rent law changes, it seemed as if the script was flipped. Everybody was saying the upside is the rent stabilized up until 2019. And then it's leave the rent stabilized. That's an ankle weight. Talk to me about your free market and tell me whether your units have been deregulated properly. Today, the conversation is incredibly, at least in this broker's experience, and we've got over a billion dollars in contracts since January. What we're finding is. While people aren't really banking on any type of explosive growth or deregulation with the rent stabilized, they're not quite as afraid of it, provided the paperwork is up to snuff. And obviously, there's two forms, the DHCR registrations and your lease riders and making sure that whatever improvements you've added to the building are well documented. We're finding with the free market, people are actually projecting rent growth which I think makes sense. If I were underwriting deals as an owner now, I would build in negative growth for certain asset classes in certain neighborhoods. But I think what the growth, the built-in growth is we're seeing a burn-off in concessions. So if you want to go rented a beautiful two or three bedroom apartment on the corner of 95th and Riverside, maybe for a moment in time over the past 18 months, you would have got a two-year lease with two months free. There's no need to do that anymore. So there's okay. definitely the post-COVID recovery. And I think we're seeing it from our colleagues who are sales brokers in the resi side. They can't keep million to $2 million apartments on the shelf. The same way you can't keep a $1,500 to $3,000 free market apartment elevator on the shelf today. So there's just people, they're, they're coming in. Hordes of people are returning you know, from their exotic enclaves of the Hamptons or Dix Hills living with mom and dad, they're coming back. And it's exciting. So I see growth. Do I see a dichotomy overall? Yes, there are still people who think that rent regulated units are verboten. And I understand why.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting because it might seem that the free market units became attractive as an alternative to the stabilized units, which became less attractive. But there's actually, I think, a legitimate fundamental argument to be made, which is that when you know people look at supply and demand in New York City, they often look at the growth of unit counts based on new construction. And there's a shadow market there, which is deregulated units coming online and adding to the supply of available apartments. And there, you know, it is certainly true that there won't be the same number of stabilized units becoming deregulated and adding to the free market pool, which creates an upward pressure on the free market units. It's an interesting I, angle you've highlighted there. I, I think that's right. But but Andrew, what I
1: think a lot of people are banking on also is a lot of the money and the feces have changed. Most people from 2010 through 2016, wanted to be in and out of a deal in 36 to 48 months. Today, the, the lion's share of our Rolodex, when it comes to Resi, has the more historical, I'll buy it, one day I will finance a big part of my equity out of it, but I'm not looking to exit at a compressed cap rate. And I think that works in New York. Not I think, we all know historically, if you buy something in New York City, and you run it well, and then we check back in on you 10, 12, 15 years later, you're the smartest person in the room. What's going to happen is inevitably when the city becomes post-apocalyptic because we've defunded the police and and we have no bail reform, we have no bail laws, and, and murderers are walking the streets, recidivist murderers, what's going to happen is inevitably two administrations from now, we're going to swing it at least back toward the middle and normalcy. When the city becomes safe again, and politicians recognize that the rent laws and deregulation, permitted deregulated units was actually not a bad thing, because there's so much fraud with rent regulation, I think what you'll see is explosive growth, but that explosive growth is five to eight years away.
0: Well, you make an interesting point there, right? Because you you made two points right next to each other, which I think go hand in hand, which is you said anyone who bought in New York, you check on them 10, 20 years later, they made a lot of money. Um, and then you also talked about quality of life issues. And I think the one, Counter argument to what you said is if you bought a nice multifamily property in 1955, maybe on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx or some other happening uh, residential location in 1955, checking in 20 years later in 1975 things were not good. Uh, And you were not the smartest person in the room. You probably either burnt it down for the insurance money or the city took it from you for the taxes. That's right.
1: So look, are there moments in time and periods of time that are going to destroy my thesis? Of course. But what you're talking about is not market fundamentals or desire to be in the city. That was a social blunder. I will say to his credit, you would a mayor who started off really strong with universal pre-K and elevating some of the communities that have been disenfranchised is the only way to fix those things. I don't think we're going to see a Bronx is burning with the real estate unless politicians and remember, we have 54 city council members and I think 38 of those seats are up for grabs. If, if the lion's share of them are democratic socialists like their existing brethren, then they may destroy the very neighborhoods that they profess to represent. Provided we can curtail crime, continue to have the kind of renaissance in great places like Bushwick, East New York, Brownsville and Red Hook, I think what you'll see is just continued growth. But then again, um, I think our greatest obstacle these days is not technology, it's not corona, it is misguided regulation. That's that's my big, that's what keeps me up at night.
0: And I think that that's fair. Um, I'm curious to know from a positive perspective, uh, on the positive side of the coin, if you were in charge and you were making the rules, how could the city productively address the issues that you just cited of inequality and poverty, high cost of living, things which human cities have struggled with since there were human cities, right? So it's not a new problem that I think can be blamed necessarily on one period or one person or one economic philosophy or one political philosophy, right? Here we are dealing with the same problem human beings have always had. And do you have a, an idea about how that might be dealt with perhaps better than you're suggesting you think it's being dealt with now?
1: It's way too broad of a question for somebody with a mouse like mine, but I think, <laughs> I, I, Andrew, I think the simple answer is In order to empower the disenfranchised, and I know you're a native New York City guy, and I'm originally a Brooklyn and then Long Island guy, I have really close ties to a a lot of communities through family and through business that are definitely impoverished. Brownsville in East New York, a place I hold dear to my heart, is a very challenged neighborhood. The way to bring equality, and obviously the polarization of wealth, I think most of your viewers whether they swing right like me or left would all agree that the polarization of wealth is a tremendous root of all discord in this world. And it needs to be narrowed in some sense. The only way to do that is to elevate, not to oppress. So the concept of of the New York City Board of Education coming out and saying, no more advanced classes, or we are going to engineer equality. That's just foolish. That's like going to the Olympics and choosing Usain Bolt and saying you need to carry two 20 pound dumbbells so people can catch up to you. Guess what? I wouldn't watch the Olympics anymore because it would be a fallacy. What you want to do is go to all the other athletes and make sure they have what his country gave him room and board, good education, the right nutrition, family, What we need to highlight in New York City is what Mayor de Blasio almost got. The greatest thing that he's done and what I'll always remember and be thankful for is universal pre-K. I think it should be taken a step further. I think there should be universal childcare. It breaks my heart to think that my children can go to a fancy pre-pre-K or twos program when the single working parent in a disenfranchised community can't even work because they're saddled with the child. This child's a blessing, but you know what I mean. If the city can redistribute funds and make neighborhoods safer and make schools place of refuge where there's three hot meals, where there's discipline in place, then you will never have to get rid of AP tests because everybody will be running at the same speed. That's how you fix things from below not from above. The concept of closing jails, that's foolhardy. You're going to let them out onto the streets. Preposterous. Why don't we educate in communities and make sure that crimes aren't committed? And this translates to real estate. You cannot kill the cash cow. Over my right shoulder is a uh, life-size cutout of one of my favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan espoused trickle-down economics, which 50% of academic academia says doesn't work. And the truth is it may not work completely, but for a city who has to line its coffers with money, you cannot tax the real estate world out of existence. And this is on the federal level too. The concept of rolling back 1031s, I don't mind if you erode 10 or 20% of them. Okay. I think it's foolish, but what people don't recognize is taking away 1031s completely Nobody cares about the real estate broker and nobody cares about the institution that's trying to graduate to bigger deals. But have you given thought to the trickle down effects? Let's say volume throughout the United States drops by 30 percent. Title people. What about the trades? What about the unions that work in these buildings? A new building changes hands because of a 1031? There is equity. There are workers. There are construction workers. There are new opportunities. There are mortgage recording taxes. There's title people. There's lawyers. If you drive down the volume of real estate in this country, you're going to have the opposite effect. We can't pay for some of these misguided programs with other revenue streams that need to be protected. Is it unfortunate that some people get really, really rich off of real estate and others do not? Sure, I wish everybody had what I had, but that's not nature. And if you kill real estate, much like you hurt finance in New York City, the finance world and Wall Street used to be the biggest provider of taxes to the city. You wounded them at a federal and state level. Now you're going to ruin real estate? Well, why don't you just do crazy things like telling Amazon not to come here? Oh, wait, we've already done that. I'm afraid of legislation more than I am about the fundamentals. This is the greatest city on earth and everybody wants to be here.
0: I want to, um, sometimes I wish you would just tell me what you really thought because you know <laughs> you speak in such elusive terms, it's hard to get a grasp on your feelings. I want to circle back to something you said about real estate. You said a lot of your buyers are thinking long-term and you said a lot of the people who were buying to flip in 24, 36 months- turn some units, raise the NOI, maybe compress the cap rate and move on, have left the the New York game. Is the long-term hold the only viable business plan right now? Or are there other business plans that you see being executed successfully?
1: No, look, certainly. I think there's always an opportunity. As I explained to, to, uh, just explained to, to a young lady who interviewed with us, she asked one of the best questions I've ever heard in an interview. She's coming out of a a wonderful school and she wants to be a broker. And she said to me, has technology destroyed the ability to find a deal in the city? And are there too many brokers? And I parroted what the great Peter Hausberg, my former mentor who passed away and an icon in this industry said to me, if you get up and you have half of a brain and a good moral fiber and a moral compass, and you hustle like no other. There's no reason you can't bring home a million bucks a year in New York City. So the answer is there's always a deal. There's always death, bankruptcy, divorce, an institution that's just decided it's time to sell and just wants to get rid of it. Sure, you can buy deals and make money immediately and in the short term. But as a general proposition, I think that with the headwinds that we're facing socially and fiscally and po- politically, politically. I think that most people recognize that they're going to underwrite a longer hold. Could you buy something in Brooklyn that's going to be more valuable in 24 months? Sure, you could. Look, it's happening in the residential markets. All of Westchester had been depressed for years. I bought a new house in 2018. Apparently, it's worth 30% more than when I bought it. And that
0: could happen in New York for certain asset classes. Right. So I understand what you're saying. It sounds like macro plays um, and a longer term thinking. I'm curious to know, you mentioned that you're starting to see the cap rates compress so much in other places that it's driving people back to New York City that have left. Uh, Do you think that that's the general direction of the tide of capital? Is it away from the nashville denver cities is it back to new york or is it sort of leveling off how would you describe that overall flow of money the amazing thing is
1: there's just so much darn pent-up equity that i think every place is hot throughout the united states i do think that people whose core competency are the commercial business districts who, who really were kind of neophytes in these far-flung places. Like the aforementioned or Irving, Texas, I think some of them are going to retreat quicker. But I think the concept of diversifying and investing in what were historically called secondary and tertiary locations, I think that what COVID is one of the pros, if you can say there's a pro. Certainly, nobody would have traded for the, uh, you know uh, this for the loss of life. But I think what we've learned is. It used to be people would commute up to the suburbs, to northern Westchester, northern Jersey, to get into New York City. Then it became Rockland County, which we started calling the excerpts. Now with the ability, and it is with us permanently in some iteration, the idea of working remote or not being present five days a week, and that's from the senior most lawyers down to data entry folks. I think what you're going to see is more investment in places that were considered not commutable. Suburban office is on a tear, and it makes sense. I have watched the law, the legal industry, evolve so incredibly. When I was a young associate in 2000 at a major firm here in the city, it was not only a badge of honor, it was a requirement to take your dinner at your desk. And woe be unto thee if you if you left before seven eight o'clock at night. And the partners would be there too. These days, a lot of lawyers at the highest levels are not physically present, nor will they be all. The, so, look, change is good. I think it's wonderful if somebody can live out in Hop Hog and have a high paying job. That's only going to make the entire corridor between here and Hop Hog more valuable.
0: Yeah. And like going back to what you said, it helps create equality because it lowers the demand for housing in the city, which lowers the cost of housing here, and it raises the values out there and it helps level the playing field. It's an interesting. It,
1: it does, Andrew, but we just read about in the press, $157 million. I don't know if it was uh, the Vornado building on, is it 220 Central Park South? a $157 million apartment, which is diagonal from a homeless shelter. So my fear is that while all of remote working is working and that there may be growth in other places, what I'm really concerned about is I hope New York doesn't become extremely polarized like a lot of European or South American cities. That would be a a tremendous disservice. And I actually think that it is a well-intentioned idea that we're reading about the past few days, the concept of state funding to convert vacant buildings to affordable housing. Provided the government recognizes that private-public partnerships work, then I think we could be in for some really interesting times and some really creative solutions to bring those folks who are lower earners back to the city.
0: I want to ask you two questions to wrap up and I don't want to take too much of your time. I appreciate all the insights you've shared so far. If you had 2 million dollars to spend and you had to spend it in New York City on real estate, what would you buy? So if my
1: wife gave me 2 million of her dollars to spend on New York City real estate, what would I do? On our personal account, we we certainly don't buy any deals outright, because I think it's a conflict, even if it's just optical with owning, but we are involved in, in owning real estate. I, I think that we would likely buy, we would likely buy an apartment at this point, And it wouldn't be anything too tremendous for $2 million. But I think that even though pricing has spiked from the precipice, from the, uh, excuse me, from the abyss, the fact that you can lock in on a thirty-year mortgage at three, three and a half percent is something that I doubt I'll see again in my lifetime, and I'm forty-six. So I think it would be buying an apartment, and I'd love to have a little slice of Brooklyn. But I also think that for two million dollars, one of the most overlooked asset classes, and certainly a colleague of yours, Michael Rudder, who is the best in the city at that. I think that on a price per pound unit, some of the best and the brightest generational families look at deals on a price per pound. What you saw, 11 or 1200 a foot, has retreated to 600 a foot. I'm changing my answer. I would buy an, an office condominium.
0: From Michael Rudder.
1: Through Michael Rudder, yes. Or I would certainly have him opine. I wouldn't I'd buy it from James Nelson. I'd buy it from anybody. <laughs> but I think an office condominium is yeah. the right play uh-huh. because I think you're going to see a return in values tremendously when people are back, especially since the great question about the leases. You're an accounting firm. You have 15 members. You're a boutique specialty firm. All you do is international with South America. Ah, do you really want to commit to a five to 10 year lease? Then you have to sublease. You don't know if you're growing. Why don't you just plunk down a couple million bucks and get something that's alienable. You can always sell it. And if we think we're in a down market and your experiment doesn't work here in New York, you have something you can sell as opposed to breaking a lease. So I think an office condominium is the right play. You had a second
0: question though. The second question was, if you didn't have to buy it in New York, would you and what would you buy instead? Oh if I didn't have to spend the two million dollars that you convinced my wife
1: to give me that must be spent on real estate in some fashion, I would I want you to know a,
0: by the way, I asked her to give you more, but she's a tough negotiator.
1: My allowance comes in every Friday afternoon just like my children. and if you think I'm kidding sadly, I'm not. I would buy small, very modest a house. On the west coast of Florida, on a canal with a boat large enough, with a a slot large enough to have a 23 to 27 foot center console fishing boat. I would put a giant American flag in front of my lawn and that will be Sheckman Bunkport South where I hope to be before I hit 60.
0: That's so such a general answer. I can tell you haven't given it any thought. Uh, and I appreciate you coming up with something on the fly.
1: Well, this is what happens when you have 51 minutes in each direction on the train. You answer <laughs> emails and perhaps maybe you dream a bit.
0: That sounds good. Well, uh, I appreciate that. Is the city of dreams. So I think that that's uh, the right place to end. David, I appreciate you taking the time and all your insight. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank
1: you and be well.
0: Thanks for listening. That's all for today.